0: Thanks, Pastor Adam. Oh, yeah, you better wipe that down. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about Adam is that he thinks I'm funny. At least one person uh, does. Um, I know I get a lot of eye rolls at home from my dad jokes. And, um, you know, even on Sundays, my wife, I get home and she'll say things like, you know, Norb, you try to be too hard to be funny. So I'm trying to um, not try to be so funny and be more serious. I'm just kidding. I don't think I can ever get used to this because here's the hard part is, is I say something funny and it's like flat. There's no response. I say something like moving and there's no tears that I can see. You know, all those kind of things. There's just no feedback whatsoever. And, uh, and that's why one thing would be nice if uh, later on at the end of the service I'll remind you, but we've got a digital or online uh, friendship book. We'd love for you just to take 30 seconds and, and let us know and just just engage with us. Uh, we love you. We miss you. And uh, like I said, I don't ever want to get used to this, and um, I don't know if you've been following some of the updates. It appears that um, restrictions on gatherings of any more than 15 are going to be uh, in place until at least the end of August. And uh, I know when I heard that this week, my heart just kind of sank, and there's so many implications to that. But one of the things I really believe is is that we're learning uh, to be the church, and that's important for us, that church is so much more than just a gathering on Sunday morning. As important as that is, and I can't wait for the time that we can be together again, and we can and we can unite our voices and hear one another giving praise to God, and I'm so excited about that. But one of the things that I've noticed in these days, even more recently, is this kind of growing sense of restlessness, and uh, just people becoming... Um, a little agitated about this whole situation and you can see it in different ways and I ventured out on Friday afternoon I had an errand to run and I hadn't been out much and um, I was shocked by how many cars were out on the roads and uh, later on when I tuned into Facebook there were a lot of other people that were really annoyed with all the cars on the streets because they're like people don't you get it just stay home already and somehow we feel like you know that good kid in school that's losing recess time because of you know, one or two uh, bad kids. But there's a lot of conversations that are happening, and some of you are having them, having them amongst yourselves and your friends, that there's a sense that we're getting tired of this, and that if we could just return back to normal. But that's got me thinking. What if our old normal, the way things used to be, wasn't actually that very good? What if it wasn't very helpful to us as we were living out our faith, uh, what if in this season, if we considered it almost a sabbatical of sorts, where we, where we took some time to rest and to pray, as hard as it is, what if in fact this moment is an opportunity for every one of us? Uh, you often hear that, you know, we may not all have equal amounts of income, but we all have equal amounts of time. And what is it that we do with that time in this moment, I think is extremely important. Because I have this sense that if God is going to use this situation, if he's going to use this terrible situation for good, what is the good that he's going to do in my life? Or what is the good that he's going to do in your life? If this is more than just putting a big pause, what if it is actually a reset? What will my life look like after COVID-19? And so when I hear people now talking about, well, the new normal, whatever it'll be, knowing that it's going to be different for sure, my encouragement to you and to me today is to recognize that the best way to prepare for an unknown future is to, in fact, really embrace this particular moment, to know that this is a moment unlike anything we've had in history. Suddenly, every history book and social studies curriculum has become obsolete because this has changed everything. One of my Uh, long-time favorite movies is a movie called Dead Poets Society, and the star in it is is Robin Williams. And and I haven't watched it for a long time, and and there's always a danger in saying this was a good movie because I can't remember some of the details, and you're going to go and watch it this afternoon, and you're going to go, oh, man, Pastor Norbert thought this was a good movie. Um, So full disclosure, I haven't watched it for a while, but I do remember this one extremely powerful scene where Robin Williams, who's the teacher, he brings all of the students out, uh, into the hallway and they're going through a poem and then he invites them to get close to the, the pictures of all the students that had gone to that school before them. And, um, and he had talked about uh, what they might be saying to them now, how they would, might be encouraging them to live, even as he says um, uh, quite graphically, they're, they're feeding the daffodils because uh, they're dead and they're decaying. And, um, and so as her are listening, he starts, he goes, carpe diem, carpe diem, or seize the day. And I wonder, I just wonder if this moment, if this season is something for us to seize, to really make the most of it, the best that we can. And the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, he says, in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, he says, Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. And what does a wise person do in how they live? He says, they make the most of every opportunity. In fact, in Colossians, he says something very similar, and this time it's in the context of our interactions with those who don't know Jesus. He says, just be wise and make the most of the opportunities before us. I have to tell you that I'm actually really challenged by this thought, because my biggest concern would be, what if I did waste this opportunity in my own life? What if I do just return to business as usual and I just want to go back to what my life used to be like? And what if there were things in my life then that actually weren't very helpful in me growing out and, and, or, or walking out and being formed into the image of Christ? What if I return to that old normal and actually miss the deeper work in my life that God wants to do? What if we come out of this and we have renovated rooms and decluttered homes, but we've in fact wasted the opportunity to have our hearts renovated and our souls decluttered. Now, just as an aside, my wife has been on a decluttering mission, so please pray for me. Because I'm the keeper and she's the thrower-awayer, and we're going to do the storage room this Thursday. So about 9 a.m., if you would just start to pray fervently, I would really, really appreciate that. But how does God do a renovation of the heart? I think when we looked at his word, there's so many places we could go. But this verse captured me last week, and it just kind of stuck, and I couldn't get away from it. And it was just this, Romans twelve twelve, Be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And it, that, those three phrases are in the context of, of Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. That talks about love in action. And uh, if you have some time, I encourage you to read the whole passage. But I'm going to just look at that and in a very simple way, just break down each of those fa- phrases. Because I think that there's something that we can really hang our hats on as we engage uh, in this season, as we really seize this moment. So the first of those is just be joyful in hope. Be joyful in hope. Now, it's important to first understand the difference between joy and happiness. Because I want to be sure to, to tell you this. This isn't kind of one of those don't worry, be happy kind of messages, right? It's not the philosophy of Bobby McFerrin who wrote that song, you know, uh, the landlord says your rent is late, you may, he may have to litigate, um, which in fact he can't do right now because of some of the restrictions around COVID-19. But anyways, there's so many other things there that he talks about in the sense of, of um, how bad life can be and uh, life is terrible and there's lots of trouble, but just whistle your way uh, through life and don't worry, be happy. That's not what we're talking about here. Because joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness has to do with happenings. It's an emotion that we feel that's impacted by our circumstances. And right now there's a lot of sadness in our world. There's a lot of loss. I hear about it all the time, and it just feels like there's this collective grief that permeates everything. Because really, there isn't much to be happy about. And that's okay. It's important to grieve and to acknowledge that loss and to know. Like, so when your kids say, Mom, I miss my friend, just say, I know, I, I miss them too. I miss my friends too. Because that's real and that's true to who we are. But I want you to hear this. You can have joy and be sad at the same time. You can can have joy and be sad at the same time. Because joy, unlike happiness, is independent of our circumstances. Joy is rooted in, in, in something that is much deeper and way more important. I often look at the difference between happiness and joy like the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. I heard this illustration years ago. I always come back to this because it just was so memorable and it makes so much sense to me. A thermostat is is um is impacted by the changing conditions right so the the temperature goes up on this thermometer did i say thermostat? i meant thermometer first the thermometer goes up and down with the changing conditions and that's what happiness is like and so we almost have this scale there's maybe sadness on this side and then happiness and we kind of move back and forth between that and it's very dependent on our feelings but a thermostat is set. It's what you set the room temperature at, and it holds the temperature steady. And so joy is like that. It's this constant stabilizing thing in our lives. And why is joy so important? Because joy is ultimately rooted in God's love. Joy is rooted in God's love for us. That's why it's so important. And God's love is unchanging. Karl Barth, he was a, um, a famous theologian and scholar and he was doing a lecture circuit and he was speaking to some students at the University of Chicago in the chapel there and at the end they had a question and answer time and he was asked um, of all of the theological truths that, that he has expounded on, that he's taught on, that he's lectured on, what is the most important? How could he sum it all up that was most meaningful in his life? And he simply said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In fact, Jesus himself said that in John fifteen eleven. He says, I have told you this, and that this he's referring to is he had just said, I love you to his disciples. And so he says, I've told you that I love you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete or that your joy may be full. And so this fullness of joy that we experience is rooted in the fact that we know that God loves us, that Jesus loves us. And so joy is not dependent on our circumstance. And so there's nothing happy about many situations that we're facing right now. But our circumstances have nothing to do with the deep down joy that will well up within us during even the darkest days. And I love the song we we sang earlier. I can't quote it because I just didn't think about it that much. Until we were singing it, I'm like, this is it. This is exactly what we were talking about. That we will still praise you in spite of the fact that we might be in the valley. We can praise because of joy. Joy is that deep-seated sense of well-being that's within you and that sustains you no matter what is happening around you. Joy is what makes you sing no matter what your circumstances and makes you sing with all your heart, it is well with my soul. I've often shared that as another one of my favorite go-to illustrations. And if you know the story of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, and if you don't, you can Google it and, and, and read more about it. But let me just briefly say this, that it was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. His wife, uh, they had uh, five children. His son died in 1971, which was the same year that he lost almost his entire business due, due to the Great Chicago Fire. His family in 19 or 1873 got on a ship to go, um, go to Europe, and it was just his wife and his four daughters. Their ship hit another ship, and within 12 minutes, that ship sank. And uh, his wife was the only one that survived. She gets to Wales. She telegraphs, uh, sends a telegram back to her husband and says, saved alone, what should I do? So Horatio, her husband, gets on... Um, on a uh, on another ship to go over four days into the journey the captain calls him into his cabin and says we're near the spot where your daughters died where they drowned and uh, I can almost picture him as a dad standing on the rail of that ship looking out and seeing the waves crashing upon this ocean liner and saying to himself these words as they probably just came. And he wrote this hymn in, 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 as a result of that experience. And we know that hymn well, don't we? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, the second verse goes, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. Here's that confident hope that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And this is my favorite verse, the third one. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Friends, that is the foundation of our hope. Total forgiveness, not just a piece of it. Eternal life, life to the full now. That is the confident hope that we can be joyful in. In Paul, in writing earlier in Romans chapter 5, he says this, we also rejoice in our sufferings. You're like, what, Paul? What are you on? I mean, really, rejoice in our suffering? That just sounds total like crazy talk. But he goes on, he says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And he goes on, he says, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I mean, in this season, right now, there's lots of worry. There's fear. People are scared. There's uncertainty. And, and, and those are all real things. There is things to be concerned about. But when we can come and be joyful in this hope that God loves you, that, that, that he was willing to sacrifice his son to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. He loves you and he cares for you. And that brings joy that is just a constant in our life. A firm foundation upon which to build our lives. And so friends, I'm just going to ask you do, you, do you know this joy? And maybe you've never come into a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Just accept him and say yes to Jesus. And maybe you have, but you in your own mind go, man, I'm, I'm rocked by these events. And I don't know that same foundation of joy in my life. What, what has happened? And as we sang even this morning in created Me a Clean Heart, it was the words of Psalm 51 that the psalmist wrote. And what did he say? Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. So maybe just ask God to take you back so that you might experience again and anew the wonder of the forgiveness of sins that we have. That's how we can be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be patient in affliction. That just seems awful, doesn't it? I mean, I don't even really want to explain this. Probably don't even have to. Be patient in affliction. We all know that the word patient is, is very true in the context that we're experiencing right now. But patient means bearing pains or trials calmly or without complaint. Bearing pains or trials calmly or without complaint. The Greek word translated patient means endurance or to continue to bear up despite difficulty and suffering. It, it, it really means Perseverance. Being patient describes the capacity to continue to bear up under these difficult circumstances. It's one thing to be joyful in hope and to have that underlying foundation. But in addition to that, we need to be patient in affliction or patient in times of trouble. And this isn't a passive complacency. This isn't a, you know, kind of just suck it up, princes. You'll get through this. But it's a hopeful resilience that actively resists weariness and defeat. It's a hopeful resilience. So we might even say that patience is the willingness to accept situations that are irritating and painful. I mean, none of us like situations that are irritating and painful. They just, we we want to avoid those kind of things. But being patient in affliction means exactly that. It's this patient endurance that is inspired by the hope that something good will come. That we keep our eyes to the future. And so while nobody likes what's going on right now, these are days of trouble and hardship and suffering. But in all of that, God calls us to be patient. I love the story of Corey ten Boom and her family. Some of you probably know the story well. It's inspiring on so many levels. If you don't know the story, the Ten Boom family helped Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. And by all accounts, they saved nearly 800 lives. The story is captured in a book called The Hiding Place. And um, you might want to, if you're looking for a good book, there's one I would suggest to you. Corey and her family lived in Harlem in the Netherlands. They were a deeply devout religious family, and because of their faith, they provided secret protection for these hundreds of Jews. Six at a time, maybe more at other times, but they had a, a secret room built in their house that was just enough for six people that would, uh, would keep them safe and protected. But eventually, they were betray, uh, betrayed by a fellow Dutch citizen, and the entire family was imprisoned. The father died uh, there in, uh, in prison. Corrie, uh, kind of the, the main um, author and of the hiding place of the book, it was her uh, biography, and her sister Betsy, they were remanded in the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp near Berlin. They patiently endured a lot in those days and the barracks where Cory ten Boom and her sister Betsy were kept were terribly overcrowded and flea-infested. They had somehow miraculous been, miraculously able to, to smuggle a Bible into that concentration camp. And in that Bible they read that in all things they were to give thanks and that God could and will use anything for good. Well, Betsy who she was the almost the more radical of, of the two sisters, she decided that this meant thanking God even for the fleas. This was too much for Corey, who said that there was no way that she could ever thank God for the fleas because it was just so annoying and irritating. But Betsy insisted. And so Corey gave in and she prayed to God, thanking him even for the fleas. Now, over the next several months, a wonderful but curious thing happened. They found that the guards never entered their barracks. They never came around. So this meant that the women were not assaulted. It also meant that they were able to do the unthinkable, which was to hold open Bible studies and prayer meetings in the heart of a Nazi concentration camp. And through this, countless numbers of women came to faith in Jesus Christ. And it was only at the end did they discover that the guards had left them alone and would not enter the barracks because of the fleas. As we patiently endure these troubled times, let's thank God for how he will use all things for good in the lives of those who trust him. In this time of rising unemployment and a time when many are facing emotional challenges, when stress has everyone on edge, there can be little doubt that praying a prayer of thanksgiving can be a challenge. But when we feel that challenge, let's take a moment and remember the fleas of Ravensbrook. It may be that God has provided these days, these days of solitude. We talk about taking times of silence and solitude and, and and really pressing into our relationship with God through these disciplines. But maybe God has allowed this for our good. And so instead of focusing on the challenges themselves, instead of those annoying and irritating aspects of this whole thing, what if we concentrate instead? on the deeper work of God that he wants to do in each of our lives. Seizing this moment to reflect, asking God to examine our lives, when we find that there are things that are out of alignment, they're not in sync with his best for our lives, his, his, his uh, in clear instruction, we repent, we turn and put our lives back in, 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 in sync with him. Maybe we can rediscover holiness in all of this. What does that look like? So be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and lastly, faithful in prayer. Some translations make it really clear that faithful in this instance means constant. Be constant in prayer, keep on praying. What an opportunity this is for us to truly become people of prayer, to be people who are praying for and with one another, and then to deepen in our walk with Jesus ourselves, to grow. To be persistent in prayer is, in fact, what makes that uh, endurance possible, that faith, that, that uh, being patient in that endurance, it only is possible when we pray and ask God to help us in those instances. And so the way to be patient in affliction is, in fact, to be faithful in prayer. And prayer is a tremendous resource that's available to every one of us. And when we're experiencing stress and dealing with difficult situations, how can we then not pray? Prayer demonstrates our dependence on God, our need for him. And most of us, by nature, find it difficult to depend on anyone other than ourselves. And yet the invitation is to pray. And to be faithful and constant in prayer. In fact, the invitation throughout scripture, and this is very explicit in 1 Peter 5, 7, is to cast all your anxiety on him. And and in that context that Peter writes uh, to to the saints there, the anxiety that was being faced by his first readers, it was clear and unmistakable. They lived lives with the constant threat of persecution. And for Peter to address this issue of anxiety was not some theoretical idea, but it was very, very practical and real in their lives. As normal people who professed faith in Jesus Christ, they worried about the things that people worry about. Their families, finances, their future. And isn't that what brings so much anxiousness into our own lives? Some of the insecurity we're feeling, the instability, the uncertainty. Now, it's important to recognize that Peter doesn't say that we should deny our anxiety or somehow ignore it or even to run from it because that is, that is escapism. We look for all sorts of things to escape from some of the pain that we're experiencing. And there's all sorts of um, terrible ways to deal with our anxiety. But what Peter says is this cast all your anxiety on him. It's a great word. It's this decisive, energetic, descriptive action word, and it really means to hurl or to throw or to chuck, to get rid of. Wednesday morning is garbage day on our street, and when you hear the garbage truck coming, and if you just ever look out and you watch this, you know, the garbage man doesn't gingerly pick up the the bag of garbage and just kind of gently place it into the the back of the garbage truck. No, grabs with one hand, he flings it over his shoulder. He hurls that uh, bag of garbage into the truck. It's a great picture for us to think about when we're weighed down by some of the burdens of our anxiety that God invites us to take it and, and not gently, just, just cast it, just get rid of it, hurl it, give it to him, release it to him. And in doing so, we acknowledge God's ultimate control and we give him our anxieties. Why? Because Peter goes on to say, because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. You are his primary concern. And friends, we can pray for one another too. Sometimes the burdens that we carry are too heavy. And we can take the same thing. You're burdened by something. I can help you pick up those anxieties and together we'll toss it and bring it to the Lord. Again, what an opportunity that this is for us to become a people of prayer, to become a church of prayer. And so again, you know, we've been offering, Pastor Adam's been doing an incredible job teaching a class called um, Becoming a People of Prayer. Just how do we how do we pray and it's so practical i want to encourage you if you haven't been following along tuesday night at seven o'clock you can join in live but all the previous um um, classes are already online you just see them on the uh on the resources uh, page on our website um there's podcasts if you don't have time to sit down and watch the video but but take advantage of some of that that teaching because we believe that in this season it's important for us to become people of prayer if this hasn't been a habit and even if it is there's always something we can learn and grow in and again i just want to add your, an invitation come this evening to the prayer summit you see all that to say that this is how i believe that we can seize this season to make the most of the opportunity that's before us where we're joyful in hope because we know that god loves us where we're patient in or affliction because we can trust God, that he's at work bringing about good in some way, and that we can be faithful in prayer because we know that he cares for us and he invites us. So I just want to say renovating is nice, but a transformed heart is even better. Decluttering is good, but taking a good hard look inside through prayer is even better a little teaser for you. Next Sunday, we're going to start a new series of messages that we're just calling Chasing Happiness. And I think that there's so many areas that we can chase happiness and look for it in all the wrong places. But we're going to study the Beatitudes, which really is Jesus' first primary teaching, the Sermon on the, of the Beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, where he's teaching about the character, the kind of people that we ought to become. And so that's, a, that's kind of a follow-up to all of, all of this. So I invite you to be part of that next week. I'm going to just close with this because I think it's important. Last night I got an email and, uh, from a friend uh, that attends TCC, and he wrote this. Norb, last Sunday as I was in the Word before online church, the Lord interrupted me and had me write this down. The Lord has brought about these days of solitude. For God's people to use these days for inner reflection, repentance, and times to listen and hear what the Holy Spirit is speaking to each one of us. Do not despise or waste this time. Live a holy life. That's all he said. Hello, that's all he said. I mean, that's pretty significant. My heart leapt for joy when I read that because I knew it was just confirmation of this message. Do not despise or waste this time. Sounds like seizing the season to me. Let's pray.